0: We uh, continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, let's just dive right into the scriptures. We are gonna look at Mark chapter one, verse 12 and 13. That's on page, uh, what's that say? 300, uh, 836 in the Bible that's in front of your chairs. We'll be reading out of the English Standard Version this morning page 836 we're going to be reading about the temptation of jesus <coughs> follow follow along as i read this passage the spirit immediately drove him that's jesus out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Here ends a reading of God's word. Before we go on, I also want to read briefly of two other parallel accounts of Jesus' temptation, the first being found in the Gospel of Matthew. Follow along as we read this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You would think, right? And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And then another parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan where he was baptized. We talked about that last week. And was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. I became a Christian my freshman year in college uh, and, and I remember that, that f- those first few months after re- recognizing God's grace in my life, the joy that just pervaded my heart, you know, no matter what happened around me, it, w- it was almost as if like nothing could bring me down. But I remember after that initial honeymoon period, going through a phase where I felt like, oh my goodness, like I, I was just in a desert. Where was God? Where was the joy that I, I felt Earlier on, when I first became a Christian, am I even a Christian? I remember after those moments, uh, one thing that I I kept seeing uh, in in my own spiritual walk was every time, for example, I I went to a retreat and and came back, or every time I felt like things were finally starting to come together in my life, or, or I had a week in which I made some real significant progress spiritually... What seemed to happen almost immediately following that without fail was that I ended up taking two steps back or I got too busy or distracted to grow further in my relationship with God or uh, I I ended up in a place where I felt more confused and less certain about my faith than ever before. I've since come to learn uh, just from my own walk and uh, the experience of, of other saints and even talking to a lot of you that there are times when God seems to really bless you. I remember having a conversation just last month, a young woman saying, man, I'm so excited about God and following him. I remember the, the week after uh, her coming up to me and just saying, man, I'm so discouraged. I don't know what's going on. Well, well, there's a few principles that we want to look at during the, uh, uh, through, through the, the story that really helps us understand the occasion for temptation and, and the nature of temptation in our lives. And, and so we're going to start off with a principle, and then we'll kind of see where this is found in the scriptures that we read this morning. And so the first principle that I want to point out is this, that conflict and trouble often comes after a spiritual high point in our lives. Right? We have to pay special attention to the way Mark tells the story of Jesus here. Uh, one thing that's very unique about the Gospel of Mark, he uses the word immediately 42 times throughout his Gospel. 42 times he uses that word. And 11 of those times he uses right in the first chapter in the first chapter alone, and so uh, we're gonna go back to uh, something we read last week, but notice this, um, the, uh, I, I kind of uh, faded out the rest of the story, but, but look at what, uh, uh, oh sorry, that's says Luke, but Mark's does in, in chapter one, verse 10. He says this is Jesus being baptized in, in, in the waters of Jordan, and immediately he saw the spirit descending on him like a dove. And, and then the very next story, he reverses it, but it's the same words. He, he says, the spirit immediately. What Mark is trying to do here is saying, look, there is no break in this story. Even if your Bible breaks up these two stories, there's no break. Mark connects these two stories together. Right after the baptism of Jesus, what follows immediately is that Jesus is driven into the wilderness. And so notice, uh, after the Spirit of God comes down upon Jesus at his baptism, and, and Luke says, remember, that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and in that story, God the Father speaks to Jesus, his Son, and gives him words of blessing and affirmation. What follows after that mountaintop experience is not peace and tranquility. Uh, what follows is that Jesus is driven right into the heart of the desert to face spiritual battle against the enemy, and so uh, there's a lot of there's a pattern here, right? First, there's water and there's spiritual spirits baptism. Then there's wilderness and spiritual battle. First, there's this voice from heaven that comes down and, and affirms Jesus's identity. Then there's a voice of hell that comes that questions Jesus's identity. First, there is strength and renewal and comfort. And then next, there's weakness and isolation and conflict. And the way that Mark tells the story is almost as if the temptation was the consequence of Jesus's baptism. Or Jesus was driven (coughs) into the wilderness because of this mountaintop experience of his baptism. Now, here's the question, why does that happen? And maybe you've experienced this in your life. Why does that happen that whenever it seems like God blesses you, almost immediately what follows is trouble and conflict? Well, part of the reason is because God's activity in the world always triggers spiritual conflict. Okay, when God's reign and rule invades the kingdom of darkness and challenges the enemy's claim on you, you can be sure that it will invoke spiritual battle. Now, this is not the way we often think about it. Now, imagine, if you will, that you get to the place where you are so filled with the Holy Spirit that literally all of your thoughts, all of your words, and all your actions are totally pleasing to God. Now, let me ask you this. Given that assumption, how do you think your life would go at that point? How would you describe your life? Well, I know if I thought, well, if I was full of the Holy Spirit, I assume that my life would now be easy, right? That there would be, my life would be absent of any conflict or pain or trouble. But that's not what we see here. Or, or let me ask another way. What do we assume when life is going well? I'll tell you what I assume when things are going well for me. I think, (laughs) you know, my life is going pretty well, at least better than those people around me. So I, I may never say this verbally, but I do think this unconsciously. Well, therefore, God must be pretty happy with me. Perhaps more so than the people that are around me because my life is going so well. What happens when your life isn't going so well in contrast? We can have a tendency to think, man, life is pretty tough. Troubles, hardships, and conflict. You know, and we might even unconsciously think, God must not be very happy with me. Especially when I look at all the other people around me, and and they just seem to be having such an easy time. But here we see the exact opposite opposite happening. The one person who was always led by the Spirit, who was completely pleasing to God the Father, how does his life go? He's tempted, he's in the wilderness, and if you read the rest of the Gospel of Mark, you know he he experiences betrayal, uh, uh, false accusations, uh, torture, and eventually death. And so here I want to propose to you the paradox of being filled by God's Spirit. And, And it goes against what a lot of the health and wealth preachers talk about, right? The paradox is this, that the more God pours out his grace and peace and strength in your life, the more turmoil, conflict, and temptation you will experience. That goes against the nature of our, just our human instinct, doesn't it? Or, or let me put it another way. If your life is spiritually calm and tranquil, if you, if you are comfortable without any conflict on the inside, no opposition on the outside, no trouble, no setbacks, it might be because that you are not actually being led by the Holy Spirit. You are simply living for yourself and therefore you pose absolutely no threat to Satan whatsoever. Because anybody who says, look, I'm going to please God, I'm going to live for his glory and his pleasure will certainly experience conflict and, and, and spiritual trouble. And so, that this is one thing that Mark is trying to point out. The waters of baptism and the wilderness of temptation are never separated. And when you experience God's favor and blessing, you can be sure that a battle, a spiritual battle, will ensue. And so, conflict often comes after a spiritual high point in our lives. That's that's just the occasion uh, of temptation in in our lives. There's another occasion that happens that we see through this story is is this, which is really interesting. The trials and trouble uh, and temptations also come when we are most vulnerable. We want to notice that Jesus wasn't tempted in the security of the temple or in the safety of community with his closest disciples or at the mountaintop experience of his baptism. Uh, but in the lonely, desolate place of the wilderness, right? That's what Mark says. Jesus was driven into the wilderness. And in Jewish thought, wilderness was a place of danger, isolation, and where demons lived. Now, the trouble with the word wilderness for us is that it conjures up images of like maybe national forests or national parks, right? When we think of wilderness, we think of something like this, a place where it's teeming with wildlife. There's no you know, city lights, and you can see the stars at night, and uh, the, you can go hunting and fishing, and, and you could eat and talk around a campfire at night. Oftentimes, we think of this as wilderness. But the wilderness in Greek, the word eramos, is some, uh, which can be translated Uh, wilderness, but is actually better understood and translated in our modern context to mean simply desert. So instead of looking something like this, Jesus would have been driven into a place that looks something like this. Eremos describes a place where nothing grows, there's no life, it's a dry and lonely place, there's no food and no water to sustain life. And Matthew uh, accentuates this, right? Matthew says, Jesus was hungry. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, it's probably safe to assume that uh, not many of us have ever known that kind of hunger for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Um, that Jesus' hunger was on the verge of starvation. And this is why Satan's appeal to turn bread, uh, stone into bread actually had very powerful appeal to Jesus. But instead of doing that, Jesus, in effect, said, look, I'd rather starve apart and, and, and um, starve rather than violate and, and, and not follow the will of my Father. I don't know about you, but uh, when I think of hunger, when I'm hungry, does it bring out the best in you or the, or the worst in you, right? All, all the wives are looking at the husbands like, oh, man, the worst, right? Right? So just just yesterday, we we go out to lunch right before the Michigan game to our favorite Indian restaurant, and we get there and, and, and we order the food and we were waiting. We've we already got we've already gotten there like a couple hours after our usual lunch time, right? So we're already starving, as we say. And uh, this place actually makes really good food, and so the food takes a long time. So we're waiting, and we're like, okay, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And uh, I start getting restless. Um, and and this, this thing comes upon me where, where uh, some of you know, may, know, may know this term where, where you start getting hangry, right? Hunger that causes anger, right? I start getting hangry. And when I get hungry, hangry, and I'm vulnerable, it brings out the worst in me. My wife, who is so wise, notices the signs of me getting hangry, right? So she starts to, you know, I'm like looking out the window. I'm like not saying anything. I'm like inside my own head. I'm like looking at the waiters, kind of, where's our food? And she just starts chatting about something, and I can't even remember what it was. And uh, like two minutes into the conversation, I look at her, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And she just says, I, well, no, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to distract you because you're getting hangry, right? Oh, again, wise woman. But, but like hunger doesn't bring out the best in me, right? You know, you know what else doesn't bring out the best in me? When, I, when I'm hungry, when I'm tired, and when I'm driving in rush hour, right? This happened last weekend, Right. Uh, Again, I'm from the East Coast, and I usually chalk it up to being an East Coast person. Right. Everybody here drives so slow and so so terribly. You know. Uh, So last weekend, I'm with my kids driving back from karate class, and we're 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 going we're going to the library to return some books. And the entire time, and this is very common. Uh, when I drive, unfortunately, where I I start like yelling at the other drivers, right? And I'm like, come on, what are are you doing? Come on. And two things that absolutely drove me nuts this this weekend or that last weekend was the people who like make a right turn but don't turn on their signals, right? And then you're like pressing on your brake and I'm like, come on, dude, you're, oh. Or what even drives me more nuts, and this is what happened as we were uh, pulling into the library. Somebody turns on their turn signal and it takes them forever to turn into that corner. And I'm sitting there like, come on, let's go. What's wrong with you? My son, my nine-year-old son in the back as I'm pulling into the library says, "Uh, dad, that's not very kind. (laughs) And I'm like, shoot, you're right. You know what? I'm sorry. You are absolutely right. And then to throw like salt on top of the wound, he says, besides, you're a pastor, (laughs) right? I'm like, oh, yes, yes, right? So the occasion of temptation comes when we are like most vulnerable, and this is, this is really important to know here. Jesus, uh, he begins his public ministry in the desert being tempted. And, uh, you know, if I were Jesus and I want to uh, start off my public ministry, I would have probably gone to Jerusalem, met with some important f- officials or, or did some gr- do some grand display of my divine power. But instead, he is led by the spirit of God into the wilderness. Why? And this is important. Mark is taking us back to the book of Genesis, where Satan tempted Adam and Eve in a garden, the Garden of Eden, a beautiful, lush, and fruitful garden filled with an abundance of food where they had close fellowship with God and with one another. And in that place, Satan succeeded in leading Adam and Eve astray. And in contrast, Mark is saying, "Look, after Jesus' baptism, Satan also tempted Jesus. Not in a lovely garden, but in a desolate, lonely, barren wasteland where he was tired, alone, and hungry. But it was in this place that Jesus succeeded where Adam and Eve didn't. It was Mark's way of saying, look, Jesus had an infinitely more difficult path yet he not only withstood the weight of temptation without falling into it, but he overcame the power of uh, of evil and sin and death and accomplished what all humanity since Adam and Eve could not accomplish, that is keep the laws uh, of God in in perfect obedience. And so Jesus, our perfect substitute, is the only person who never yielded to temptation, so here he begins to reverse the effects of the curse by overcoming the power of Satan, and eventually we'll see he, that, cu- that culminates in Jesus' death on the cross. And so the occasions of temptation often happens after a spiritual high point or when we're often most vulnerable. And, and, and I think you would recognize that in your own life. But, but uh, let, me, let, me, let me talk about the nature of, of temptation. And, and there's so many I could talk about, but there's only one that I want to focus on more because I see this probably more so than anything else. And so here's a principle that, that we're going to find in the text this morning. Satan accuses us by calling into question our status before God and our identity in Christ. Now, if you remember, Satan throws into question the very words that God the Father spoke to Jesus. If you were here last Sunday, uh, G- at, at Jesus' baptism, uh, the heavens are torn open and the, a voice from heaven comes down and it says, you, what, what does a voice say about Jesus and his identity? You are my beloved, what? Son, with you I am well pleased. The very first temptation that we see Satan counteracting in in, uh, Matthew's gospel, and this is immediately after the baptism, if you are the son of God. Well, didn't the father already proclaim the truth of that reality with absolute authority? And yet Satan provokes Jesus to prove what God the father has already stated as true. And notice, there was nothing Satan did here that was extraordinary. He merely whispers into Jesus' head and begins to contradict every single thing that happened at his baptism. And I think there's a lesson in here for us. How does Satan attack you and I? What is his primary strategy of attack? Does he come and try to possess you? Does he, uh, 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 like, Uh, do a whole frontal assault. No, the core of Satan's plan of attack is not to tempt you with obvious sins, right? Why don't you go murder somebody? Why don't you go steal a bank? or, Or why don't you, you know, commit adultery? Although he does use those things, right? No, his grand tactic is to call into question our very status before God and our identity in Christ, right? In Christ, we are God's beloved sons and daughters. But there's another voice that whispers in our ears a very different message, a message of accusation and condemnation that actually distorts and oftentimes erases the very truth of our status before God, and our identity in Christ. And so what Satan does is he takes the rejection and the hurt that we've experienced. He, he takes the guilt and the shame that we feel and he pours gasoline on it. And he fills us with, self, self, uh, with such self-hatred that we simply forget who we are in Jesus Christ. Satan calls into into question the spiritual authority of God's word that has spoken so clearly in your life. And so often, when I talk to people, they'll say, you you know, uh, man, I I don't know if God really accepts me uh, after how many times I failed. It's like every day I come back and I ask forgiveness for the same thing over and over again. Like I'm like damaged goods. I don't know how God can still love me after what I've done, and in fact, I've never told anybody this. Well, if you would just indulge me a little bit, I think what happens in that temptation is very similar to the story of uh, of the, a childhood story of Cinderella. I think the story of Cinderella captures very well Satan's tactic. Um, And as you remember, uh, Cinderella lives with her two stepsisters who are this pair of ugly shrews who make Cinderella sleep in in the furnace room. And they have Cinderella convinced that she is nothing more. She will never amount to anything more than just a maid. And if you've ever read that children's story and if you've ever looked at the picture, you may, you, you may remember thinking like, doesn't Cinderella know how beautiful she really is? I mean, can't she see that she is so different for both inside and out from her stepsisters? Why does she just look in the mirror? But the voices of her stepsisters are so loud and Cinderella could only see in, the mir- in her mirror very darkly and so she continues to be their slave right up until the invitation of the great ball from the prince, right? And then when when that invitation comes, you remember the story, Cinderella shyly uh, uh, suggests that she might like to go. What happens? Her stepsisters mock her. You think you would fit in with such people of beauty and grace? There's no way. And they continue to mock her uh, just thinking how foolish she is. Man, you think the prince would ever want somebody like you? There is no way. Even, even as Cinderella is helping the ugly stepsisters like stuff them into their outfits, right? They are mocking her. Well, God's grace finally comes in, in, the, in the form of a fairy godmother and dresses her in this beautiful gown. And for the first time, she looks in the mirror and she sees how beautiful she is, but she still thinks it's due to magic. She, well, you know the story. She goes to the ball and the prince her as, recognizes her as the one that he's been looking for all his life. And so he spends the entire evening dancing with her and totally enraptured by her presence. But as the clock strikes midnight, Cinderella fears that she will be exposed for the little, the homely maid that she really is. She runs out of the room, leaving her glass slipper behind. And even though she still has the other glass slipper in her possession, she doesn't come forward when when she hears news that the prince is searching the entire city for the one young lady whose, uh, whose foot would fit this dainty shoe, And once again, the stepsister's voices have her convinced that she is nothing more than an ugly cellar maid. And, and the Cinderella, and the story ends, right? Fortunately, the prince doesn't give up. He searches the entire city until he finds her. And then, you know, how does every fairy tale end? And they lived happily ever after. Well, this is a picture of I think us who are the beloved of the great Prince of Peace, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And so what he does is this. If you are in Christ, he calls you out of the cellar, out of your shame and out of your guilt and out of your fear. And he calls you to this relationship with him this love relationship with him. And, and he assures us, look, what happened in the des- desert gets completed at the cross. And there, that means that for us, the penalty of sin has been taken away. Nobody can accuse us, nobody can condemn us. And although the power of st- sin still remains, right? There's guerrilla warfare that still happens in our hearts, right? Sin has already been defeated because of Jesus's overcoming the s- Satan in the desert. And one day we know that we will be with him and the presence of sin will be no more. And that is the hope that we look forward to. In, 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 in spite of all our struggles against temptation, we have one, who, one person who has overcome sin and death for us. And so the invitation for us is to come, to, to, come, to, be, uh, to be in his presence, to come running into his arms, and to have Jesus bear the weight of our sins. Would you pray with me? And so, Jesus, this morning that we want to proclaim and declare that we are no longer slaves to fear because you have claimed us as your own. And So we ask that you would break through the hard and cynical hearts that we have would you unravel us and surround us with your presence? We want to declare that we are your sons and daughters who were chosen and adopted by you before the beginning of time, and our names are written on your hands. And so, God, who do we have to fear? You have liberated us, you have given us freedom from the bondage of sin and death. And so, we want to respond this morning. We want to sing the song of freedom, the song of faith, and the song of love to you, our Prince of Peace, our King of Kings, and our Lord of Lords. Would you be pleased with our heart's worship today? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.